All right, you guys hear me all right? Yeah! Fantastic. <laughs> Talk a little bit about who I am. So I'm Dan Lacey. I work uh, as the projects and development lead uh, for Extract Coffee Roasters. So we're a speciality coffee roaster based in Bristol, which is west of London in the UK. We started off as a family business uh, with a tiny little roaster, um, which is lovingly named James because it was painted red and looked like a Thomas the Tank Engine character. And all of our roasters have ended up with names now. So James roasts about three kilos of coffee at a time. Then we also have uh, another one called Barry, uh, which roasts about 30 kilos of Petroncini. Uh, Betty, which is the one you see on my t-shirt. This is a probat we restored from 1955. She roasts 60 kilos of coffee. And then we have Bertha, so Big Bertha, she roasts 120 kilos. And it means that we can roast around about 5,000 kilos of specialty grade coffee every week, which is quite a large amount for the UK. I'm also qualified as an AST, which is an authorized specialty trainer for the Specialty Coffee Association. Okay? So I've gained qualifications, as Joe mentioned, when I worked at the London School of Coffee, and I'm now able to teach the barista skills, the brewing, and also the sensory modules. I'm also qualified as the head judge in the national competition. So we have a lot of competitions in the UK, and we do really, really well. Your previous world barista champion was from the UK. Okay? We do really, really well in a lot of these competitions. So I'm qualified to run the teams that we do there. And I was happy enough to be coaching someone in a coffee and good spirits competition, which is the only one where you're allowed to use alcohol and coffee. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. And one of our guys did super well. So I want to show you the roastery. This is my training area. Um, a lot of the stuff that we do is built, not bought. A lot of the wood has not been designed like that because we wanted to make it look a little shabby. This is from an old chicken shed where we used to roast in a really scrappy little place. The only things that we buy brand new are the espresso machines and grinders. Everything else is refurbished by hand by two of my bosses who are just incredibly talented. So what you can see on the far side of the business there is all of the roasters lined up in size order. Sometimes we don't just do coffee. Sometimes we've got friends who run skating companies. And so we put a skate ramp in the roastery on a weekend. We gave coffee away for free. A lot of it was for the parents, for the kids, and sometimes it was hot chocolates for the kids while the parents skated. Why do we do these things? Because my boss likes skating. That's it. <laughs> the other thing we have is we had a coffee rave. So 6 o'clock in the morning. So Werberg's in Bristol is a, a pretty fruity place. Uh, and so these guys came in, set the whole rig up. We're there making coffee, and we have three hours of people dancing away. So we do lots of fun events like that. And it's really nice to have the freedom to do things like that within the business. They're not always there for purely monetary purposes. This is my boss. He is the reason that I joined the business. I've known Dave for about five or six years now. He's absolutely brilliant at what he does. People that have learned to roast off from him. One of them is roast for a company called Square Mile in London. It's got an incredibly good reputation. Another one has gone off to run Rocket Bean Roastery in Latvia. Who's someone from Latvia here? Yeah. So you know Rocket Bean Roastery? Live next door. Okay, so Martin, the head roaster, head of coffee there, he used to work with us. He came to learn off Dave and he's gone off to back home to do that. Um, we also have another guy who's gone off to set up his own roastery. So this guy is kind of my hero. He's also my boss and a very good friend. So I'm really lucky to work with him. And we also have a base in London. This is quite a recent thing for us. All of this stuff has been built out of scrap. Basically, this is called Sustainable Bankside. So what we have is uh, a site that's there for startups, eco-minded businesses. And we got a place in there. The building's going to get ripped down in about three years' time because it's right between the Tate Modern and Shakespeare's Globe. So it's prime London real estate. But we've got a great opportunity to go into there and we use this as a training base in London. So we're slowly expanding a little bit as we can. Where, where is it in London? Bankside, right near the Tate Modern. 
So, as a business, we buy coffee from around about 60 or 70 farms every year from around about 14 countries. So in no particular order, but you've got Colombia, Peru, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Costa Rica, uh, Mexico, Kenya, Burundi, Ethiopia, um, Rwanda, and a few places in Southeast Asia very occasionally. We're sort of seeing an improvement there. But we've got a really great relationship with a particular farm, and that's kind of what we're going to focus today's session on. So this farm is called La Marianella, okay, and it's in the southwest region of Colombia. This is a family-run business run by Hernando and Pablo. They've had the farm for around about 60 years now. Pablo's taking over the business, and we've been buying coffee off them for about seven years. In Colombia, typically all of the coffee is processed by what we call washed process, and we're going to explain a bit about that. These guys trust us. We've worked with them for a long time. We buy about 65% of all of their coffee now. As we've grown, they've grown. They've improved the amount of speciality grade coffee that they've produced. And we've also started doing some really interesting experimental processing, which is the bags that are on your table here. And they're all gifts for you guys to take away. Thank you. You're welcome. So some of us think of coffee and we cook about coffee beans. They're not beans, they're seeds. They're seeds of a plant. Okay? The plant is part of the Rubiaceae family. Its cousins include jasmine, so coffee flowers smell like jasmine, and uh, the tree that we get quinine from, which you'll all know as tonic. They're all part of the same group. They're alkaloid-producing plants that produce different chemicals to repel insects. We drink coffee because it makes us feel a little bit good, but if you have too much of it, it makes you feel a little bit bad because it's poisonous, okay? And that's where some of those bitter alkaloids come from. What we have to do is try and control them by picking the coffees when they're perfectly ripe and red. Most coffee cherries are ripe, like a tomato, red, and then there's a few varieties that are orange and yellow, but the majority of them are red when they're ripe. And we've got to pick them at that optimal level of sweetness, okay? Then, depending on what we do with the coffee is going to change the flavors. The other thing to understand a little bit is there are a lot of species of coffee. There's about 125. Commercially, we grow mainly two. Okay? There's another two that are grown a little bit, but they're not that popular. If you ever go to the Philippines, uh, you'll try one called Liberican. There's a little teardrop-shaped bean. They'll tell you it's the best coffee in the world, and it probably is there, but it's not grown anywhere else in the world. The vast majority of coffee that you buy is going to be either Arabica or Canifora. Has anyone heard of either of those? Yeah. yeah. Have you heard of Canifora though? Yeah. Okay, have you heard of Robusta? Yeah. Okay, so a Latin word is Coffea Arabica, Coffea Canifora. Okay, so we've got these main family groups down the bottom here. One of the things we get asked a lot about sustainability in coffee is how do we keep growing Arabica that is a very, very fussy plant and genetically it's a very, very narrow gene pool. Because of colonial coffee spreading, a lot of it put on an island called Reunion or Bourbon. They grew the coffee there and went, hey, look, we've got coffee and spread it around the world. So genetically, a lot of it's very, very similar, which makes it very susceptible to diseases. But we have a few natural mutations, and they're joined together by some of the lines that have come across here. And there's one of them I'm going to talk about today, which is the Catimor. Okay? Timor being a Robusta varietal, Hebrido de Timor, and Catora being an Arabica. So the coffee we've got here is a Catimor. Technically, this coffee should never be as good as it is. If you ask most baristas in the specialty coffee world, we've got a Catimor, they're like, ah, it's like Robusta. But it's not. So we've used this coffee, the second version of the processing, and Callum, who's one of my colleagues, came fourth in the UK Barista Championship with this coffee. And every time they interviewed him, so, Catimor. And we're like, what have we done here? We've taken amazing coffee from an amazing farm. We've processed it in a really interesting way. We've roasted it to make the flavors really pop out and shine, and we've designed drinks around it. And this, I think, is the future of coffee. It's picking things and processing them better to elicit the flavors that we like. 
So let's break it down a little bit and talk about this coffee cherry, these seeds. So they're around about that big, no much bigger than a cherry. When we grow them, the skin is intact. Depending on how you want to process and dry the coffee, what most places will do, and are probably about 99.5% of all the coffee in Colombia, also Kenya, is process what we call wash process. So they have a machine, takes off the skin and the flesh, the two little parchment covered seeds pop out, they let set for about 12 hours to dry, and then they rinse them off. And it gives you a really nice uniform flavor, which I'm gonna explain in a second. Another way is to leave the cherries intact and to dry them slowly. And that changes the flavor massively. What it will do is it will influence these tastes. This up behind me is a coffee flavor wheel. We use this as a tool. You have it in brewing. I'm pretty sure you have it in whiskey. We have it in wine. These are typical flavors. Brewberry-like, chocolate-like. So it's not saying that it's going to taste like chocolate, but it gives you the idea of the flavors. And one of the big things we talk about in coffee is sweetness. We try and make the coffee sweet, but I've told you already, it's an alkaloid. It's very bitter. There's lots of chemicals in it that taste bitter. What we also have is a lot of acidity in coffee. If it's not treated right, it becomes sour. Okay, we have a little bit of bitterness going on. We have a very tiny amount of salinity. It's normally down to poor extraction. You often get sour and salty coffee at the same time. And we have very little in the way of umami. It's not really recognized in the coffee world, even though it's a really dominant flavor and it's quite popular in bars right now. What else we can do is we can influence the mouthfeel, the texture, and obviously the temperature when we taste the coffees. They're all gonna influence how sweet or sour something tastes. So the organic acids that we have in coffee, citric acid is probably the most dominant. This is like citrusy, sour, lemony. We got malic, obviously it's kind of more apple-like. We have tartaric, which is grapes. Chlorogenic or CGAs, they're the ones that give you the bitter astringency and it makes up about 85, 90% of the bitter flavor in coffee is chlorogenic acid, not the caffeine, despite people's perception. You have acetic acid, which is caused by imperfect processing. Something goes a bit rotten, turns to vinegar. And we also have lactic acid, which is produced predominantly when we do a dry or natural processing. So the coffees that I've got here. And it's quite an interesting flavor to play with. Quinic acid is bitterness. When you roast coffee, the chlorogenic acid breaks down and becomes caffeic and quinic acid. So the higher amount of this chlorogenic acid you have in a coffee, the more bitter it will be when you roast it more, which is why darker roast tastes more bitter than light. So I'm going to talk about processing quite a bit. It's kind of the theme here, and I want to understand, help you understand, sorry, how we can pick coffees to elicit different flavors. You do this all the time with drinks and with coffee predominantly. We taste coffee, and it tastes like coffee. And that's really boring for me. We've all had espresso martini. We've all had a stout with coffee in it. We get it. So the different processing methods will change depending on the country. In Colombia and Kenya, it's a rule. The coffee has to be picked, has to be, have the skin removed, has to be fermented for 12 hours, has to be washed, has to be washed processed. You send this coffee to market in Colombia, they reject it as a defect. We used it and nearly won a competition, so who's right? I don't know. They have these different ideas. It's influenced by tradition. We'll all have recipes from the countries that we're from. Why do you make this like that? Because we always have. My parents showed me, my grandparents showed me. So why do you process coffee this way? We always have. We're lucky, we get coffees from all around the world. A lot of coffee farmers don't taste coffees from all around the world. They process the coffee the way they only know. The tradition is important, but also the climate, the environment. Okay, so if you're growing coffee, 1500, 1800, 2000 meters above sea level, in the tropics, it's quite wet. It means it rains all the time. So what have you got? Loads of water. What don't you have? <laughs> Loads of dry, hot, predictable sunshine. 
So you use the water to break off the skin of the coffee, to rinse off, and it also reduces the drying time, which means you get a more consistent product. It also has a big influence on the acidity of coffee. And this is something we talk about a lot in specialty coffee. We like acidity, it gives a little pop. You guys use it in cocktails all of the time. It gives you that complex long aftertaste. The, the economics of it is very important. And this is where we have a little bit of influence. And one thing I've seen in the last probably four or five years is a lot more high quality natural processing coffee. Mainly because of people like me judging in competitions, awarding scores based on the score sheet. They give you a distinct flavor note, tell you this tastes like fermented strawberry, and you're like, yep, definitely does. So part of that drives the price up, which means some of the farmers like these guys, we can say to them, process the coffee like this, we're going to pay a little more, we share the risk with them, but we're going to get these great flavors, and now it's in a national competition. So we have a little bit of influence to play. But from a farmer's point of view, a wash processed coffee, so much more consistent, more predictable, more controllable. So it tends to be the higher priced coffees. So I'm going to go through into detail as these guys are kindly giving you two samples of coffee each. So I'm going to talk about this and then I'll come back to the flavors, okay? So the dry or natural processing coffee, the cherries are picked when they're at their optimal level of ripeness. They remove any debris, sometimes with a flotation tank, sometimes with fans or winnowing. They then lay them out to dry in the sunshine. Winnowing is you get the coffee on a, a basket and you flick it up and someone wafts the debris off it. Very basic way of removing stick stones, bugs, things like that. So the coffee will be laid out to dry, sometimes on the floor, it's bad because it gets moldy, sometimes on a concrete patio where they can drive machines to turn the coffee, and then often on a raised bed where you can access the coffee and it improves the aeration. And then sometimes, in the case of this, it's too wet to do natural processing. They use a kiln, heating the coffee up to around about 30 degrees for around about 40 hours. The pulp, which is the sugary fruit of the cherry, dries and ferments and it gets into the seed, which changes the flavor of the seeds. It has a massive influence on it. And also the, the colors, the anthocyanins, the purpley red fruit flavors that we get used to, they go into the coffee as well. Once it's dry, the husk and parchment will be removed and then they get sent to a mill to have the rest of it taken off, separated out and screened by size and density. Because when we roast, we want the coffee to be consistent size so it cooks evenly. Now with a wet or wash process, we start with the same. We pick the cherries when they're ripe. We start to clean them apart, but straight away we break off the skin and the flesh. Think about a cherry or an olive. Squeeze it, the stone comes out. Most fruit, you keep the fruit, throw the stone. This one, we keep the stone, throw the fruit. We'll come to what else we can do with that in a little bit. It gets left to ferment overnight. So what will happen is bacteria will get on top of the fruit and break apart the pectin. It'll open it up and there'll be natural yeasts that are in the area that will start to ferment the pulp. They'll break it apart. When they come out of the cherry, they're really slimy and sticky and sweet. And overnight, they dry out and the, the seeds become very gravelly. They'll then get rinsed with loads and loads of water. It's around about 80 liters per kilo. It's quite a lot of water. And they'll get soaked and then taken out and they're covered in this parchment. They'll get laid to dry in the sun. The little parchment layer protects them as they're drying. In the middle of the sun, in the middle of the day, you have to cover the cherries so they don't get too dry. And at nighttime, they get covered again so they don't get moist. And this happens for around about two to three weeks. Once the coffee's completely dry, it'll be sent to a mill, have off this parchment removed, taken away, screened, separated out, cleaned up, and then sold. So when we buy coffee, it's always cleaned. 
It's what we call green coffee. So, what I've given to each of you now, you should have two drinks. And if I'm right in thinking, the one on the left will be what we call a wash process. And the one on the right is a dry or natural process. So have a smell of each of them and have some tastes of each of them. The one will be pretty regular coffee smell. The other one's going to smell a little funky and red. Uh-huh. And have a taste. Really pay attention to how the sweetness and the acidity are different between the two of them. One of them is going to be more clean and acidic and bright. One of them is going to be a little bit more funky and fermented and weird. So the one that's a bit more funky has got this ripe red fruit sweetness. I talk about red and purple fruit. I know they're not really a fruit, but you get the idea in terms of the flavor. We get a heavier body and mouthfeel. It's thicker, richer, more syrupy. That's because there's more sugars dissolved into the coffee. Now, the one that's a little bit more bright gives you more of the citrus, the melon, apple kind of flavors. A little bit tartaric in that coffee. It's really delicious from Colombia as well. And you get that much cleaner finish on the end of it, okay? So that's the first thing to understand. When you're buying coffee, most people buy medium roast, dark roast, house blend, whatever. What is the ingredients in the coffee? This is important for you guys. It's important for us the same. Okay? So the differences from the farm level for a dry or natural process, you don't need a lot of equipment. You pick the cherries, you dry them in the sun. Maybe you build a raised bed, mesh, wooden, stake, bamboo material. It's quite simple. It's quite easy to do, but there's a big risk of it going moldy and tasting unpleasant. If it's done well, it's complex. If it's done badly, it tastes like rotten fruit. With the wet wash process, you use a lot of water. You use a machine to take off the skin and the pulp. You need fermentation tanks. They're about the size of this room. You need channels to push the coffee through. But the difference is that you can get a really quite consistent crop. What we also find, because with the wash process, there's many more steps of processing. We end up getting rid of the good, the bad, the great, the fantastic, the excellent, the extraordinary. That's why we typically find those coffees to be superior. They tend to have less defects in them. Defects caused by molding that give us unpleasant flavors. Are with me so far? Yeah. All right. The next part I want to talk about is roasting. So the Warren's going to hand out some samples of coffee in a second for you. It's dry coffee. It's going to give you four samples just to share around the table. These are, three of them are our coffees and one is not our coffee. Hopefully you hate the one I didn't make. But what we've got is uh, this, what we kind of refer to as like light, medium, dark roast. So I'm going to try and explain a bit about it. I'm going to show you how we roast coffee. So light roast is going to retain the most flavor of origin or terroir or processing. We're going to understand how this coffee tastes. Uh, if you're trained, you're able to pick out that coffee's from Kenya, that coffee's from Yergachev, Ethiopia, that coffee's Sumatran, because you get these typical flavors and aromas. It also has the lightest body because we haven't caramelized as much of the sugars. And what we also tend to have is it's least soluble, which means you have to work harder to get the flavors out. With a medium roast, we've got more development of caramel and sugars. There's more rich body. We lose some of the delicate floral notes, but we start to get a little bit more richness and it becomes a little bit more soluble. This is what we use for espresso because it's a really short amount of time. And then we have dark roast, this generic roasted coffee smell. So some of the coffee I've given you there is a mixture of Robusta and Arabica made by a wonderful company that's world famous called Labatza. Um, I've given you another coffee there that's one of our more developed roasts, the cast iron, designed to mimic a New Zealand style roast of coffee. Takes milk well, a little bit bitter on its own. 
Another one I've given you there is an espresso version of this coffee, but a wash process. And the other coffee I've given you is a filter version, so a lighter roast. So that's why you can smell the differences. So, I don't suggest that you take this chart and open a roastery tomorrow because it won't work so well, but this is a really rough representation of what we look at when we're roasting coffee. So we have temperature and we have time. We have flame control, the amount of heat and energy we put into the roaster at any one stage. So typically this is a reading we get from the chart. We put the coffee in around about 200, 250 degrees and straight away it tracks with the temperature probe that the temperature is dropping. We're measuring the bean temperature and the air temperature. Now, in reality, the bean temperature was never 240, that was the ambient temperature of the roaster, but this is what we see. So we have these different stages, the drying, development, and then finishing stages. So, when the coffee is green and under-roasted, we get vegetal green grassy peas. If coffee's not roasted enough, it'll taste grassy. It's not very pleasant, it's not very tasty. As we roast a little bit more, around about 130 to 170 degrees Celsius, we get Maillard reactions, or Maillard reactions. It's a French scientist from the 1800s. And he understood that amino acids interact with sugars when temperature's applied, and it changes color and it changes flavor. And anyone here who made toast this morning, you made a Maillard reaction, well done. So, we understand this starts to change the flavor of coffee, but we're not done with it yet. We start to get caramelization of sugars when we're breaking down the sugars, getting more richness and body, and we start to develop these kind of chocolatey, nutty, caramel flavors that we're quite used to picking in espresso. What happens if we start roasting a little bit further is we get this peak and then a decline in aroma. This is this origin, unique flavors and smells. We get what we call first crack when the beans pop because the moisture inside swells to a point that it expands and causes a fracturing in the bean. This is, I guess, what we could call cooked, like minimum cooked, like a rare steak, for example. So there's a lot of there, you're tasting the, car, the cow, but you're not getting a lot of the richness and body. When we roast a little bit further, we start to get a little bit more of the acidity coming up, and then it starts to roast off and decline. It burns away, it gets broken down and destroyed. When we roast a little further, we get an increase in body. So for an espresso coffee, we want the peak amount of body. We want this heavy, thick, rich flavor. And we just lose a little bit of acidity, because I don't know about you, but sour espresso, it's not for me. So this is what we try and look at when we're balancing a roast. What happens if we keep roasting, we get to what we call second crack, is we get this really linear increase in bitterness. This is a chlorogenic acid breaking down, forming kaffir and quinic acid, which makes the coffee taste bitter. Okay? If you take a piece of really nice bread and you toast it, you get nice rich flavor. You toast a bit more, you lose some of the unique bread flavor. You go a bit further, you burn the toast. Now your beautiful organic artisan sourdough tastes like burnt toast. If you take a piece of really cheap white bread and burn it, it tastes like burnt toast. So if you think back to some of the companies that roast coffee really, really dark, they're not buying the best quality coffee that's been processed in a careful way, that's been managed on the farm. What they do is they buy poor quality coffee that has a lot of defect flavors in it, they roast it till it tastes like roasted coffee. So you end up with a bitter product that you have to fix with sugar. And the farmer is producing a poor quality product and getting paid less money for it. People ask me about fair trade all the time. Is your coffee fair trade? No. Fair trade is a premium that is paid on coffee regardless of quality. Fair trade will pay around about a dollar per pound more than commodity. Commodity price of coffee is lower now than it was in the 70s. I don't know about you, but cost of living went up since the 70s, anyone who was alive. Well, when we pay for coffee, we're paying normally between about 3 to 15 times the price of fair trade coffee because of the quality. 
So we believe that that's a better way of doing it. By directly sourcing from the farms and paying them based on the quality of the product, we feel that we have a better relationship. This is 15. Yes. A few samples of beans in the different stages of roasting, showing the colours. Obviously at the top So when we start to get the Maya reactions at number four, right through. Around about seven and eight is a light filter coffee, or what we call a Scandi roast. It's quite light here. And then as you go a little further, nine to 12 is espresso. We go up to 13 on one of our coffees. We never go 14, 15, 16 because it just tastes like ashtray. It's not very pleasant at all. Another element to making great coffee is the water. And this was the biggest gamble in the conversation that Joe and I had. Icelandic water is really pure. Okay, good, because a lot of the water in Bristol is really not pure. But I didn't know how our coffee was going to taste. It was a little bit of a gamble. Thankfully, it's good, I think. So I want to talk about water, because there's an element of it everywhere. As a subject, it's quite hard okay, to really understand the chemistry of water. I don't want to go too deep in case I lose you all. One of the problems that we have is taints. We put chloride in water to make sure that the water is safe to drink. You're a little bit in there, and you drink it, and it stays safe in the pipes, and it tastes a little chlorine-y. And if you're anything like in Bristol, every couple of weeks when it rains, then they put loads of chlorine in the water, and it stinks, smells like you've washed the bathroom. My wife's asking, did you clean the bathroom? Yes. <laughs> of course I did. So we have a problem as well with water that is too soft, the mineral content's too low, so there's not enough of the element to pull the flavor out of the coffee, and it can end up with coffee that tastes really sour. That was my concern with the water here, it's quite low mineral content. When we have water that's really hard, it's got a lot of calcium carbonate in it, or what we refer to as lime scale. That's the little bits of like flaky stone that builds up in your kettle. Okay? It does a few things. It damages machines because it gets blocked up in the pipes. It contracts over the element, which means the element has to work harder to get the machine hot, but also it impacts on the flavor of the coffee and it absorbs the acidity. So we've got coffee with nice citric and malic acid acidity, and then we've got water that just kills it. It works as a buffer. So it's quite important that we manage the water that we're using by filtering it out. The next part I want to talk about is controlling extraction. Okay? So there's a few things that we need to be aware of when we're making coffee. And most of us when we make coffee, we get a coffee machine, flick, flick, or we grind a bit, we put it in, it's roughly full, we run it till it looks a little bit wibbly, and we shut it off. But when we're making coffee, and we're trying to control the flavor, we need to be able to manage the whole process. So we measure the mass or weight, the amount of dry coffee that we're using. We measure the amount of water volume passing through or the yield of the espresso. We do it by weighing it. And we fix a recipe there. The recipe that we fix is going to influence the texture and the mouthfeel of the coffee and also the potential for it to extract. If we don't put enough water through, coffee will be sour. If we put too much through, it'll be bitter. What else we can do is we can control the grind particle size. So you need to buy a grinder that you can adjust. If the pieces are too big, all you'll dissolve is the citric acid. The coffee will taste sour, have no sugars, no body. If your grinder's too fine, all you'll expose is all of the alkaloids, the bitter taste, and your coffee will taste bitter. And so manipulating that grind setting, sometimes several times a day, is how you get the coffee flavor to balance. We measure the time of water. This is massively influenced by the grind particle size. When we grind finer, jams the water up a little bit, the water flows slower, extracts more. If the grind setting's too coarse, the water runs too fast, the shot finishes very quickly, and that's where they get the watery sour shots. We can control the temperature of the water. Normally, the machine I have today, not so much, we're gonna have a play with. But we wanna influence it. We normally range between about 90 and 95 degrees for espresso. We can also influence the turbulence of the water agitation, the shaking. 
The reason that we can play with flavors is the molecules are moving. They're punching the flavor out. When the water's hot, the molecules move faster. So the hotter the water, the more extraction. Cooler the water, less extraction. That's why cold brew takes 20 hours. Hello. Sort of water that is inside the machine will be around 95 degrees. 90 to 95, yeah. yeah. So I've given you a, a rough idea. This is general. This will get you close to making most espressos well. And I want to explain a little bit. I'm going to give you an arbitrary dark, medium, light roast. Obviously, without context, it doesn't mean much. So I'll give you a recipe. Let's go with 18 grams, because that's what most portafilter baskets will hold. And then we look at the yield. So we would have measure recipe. We talk about in, out, and time, predominantly. So with a dark roast coffee, 18 grams in, maybe 30, 34 grams out, small amount of espresso, 20 to 25 seconds is long enough. And the water needs to be not too hot on the cooler end of things. This is because the coffee, when it's roasted dark, is more porous, there's more fractures in the beans. It's going to let the water through it. It's going to extract and over-extract quicker, and it already tastes more bitter, so we want to put less water through it. With a medium roast, we're going to have to work a little bit harder. Okay? So we put a little bit more water through, we give it a little bit more time, which means we need a slightly finer grind setting. And we can push the water temperature up a little bit to help out. With a light roast, it's very difficult. You take a light filter coffee and run it through an espresso machine, most of the time it just tastes sour and watery. It can work for certain coffees, but typically you're not going to get much body because you haven't caramelized the sugars. You're not going to get enough richness and flavor. You're going to end up with a little watery lemon juice shot. It's not very nice. But the way you can influence it is by putting a little bit more water through. It's going to cook it a bit more. You can give it a little bit more time with a finer grind setting to give it a bit more extraction, break apart more cells, expose more of them to the water. And you can put the temperature up a little bit as well. By changing the grind setting, you influence many things. If it's too coarse, the particles are too big, you get a fast brew, reduced body, sourness, and what we call under extraction. Under extraction means we haven't got enough of the sugars out. We have ways of measuring this using a refractometer and a coffee chart. We can calculate the percentage of the bean we've dissolved. We have this magic number of 18 to 22% of the bean being dissolved is where the sugars come out. If we go too fine, we get a really slow, long extraction. The water jams up. It increases the body. We get a stronger coffee, but sometimes we get bitterness and we get what we call over-extracted. David, you said sugar in, in the coffee, so is there sugar in the coffee? Because you split it. Yeah. It varies from Arabica to Robusta. Arabica has about double the amount, so around about 14-15% sugar. So the sugar is the carbohydrate sugars that the plant has to grow. And we just basically break it down with the roasting process and make it soluble. Robusta has a much smaller amount, which is also why it tastes so bitter. It smells like that. So I want to talk a little bit about coffee and cocktails, about how can you apply what I'm talking about into your bars. Not everybody has a 10,000 pound espresso machine or space for one or a desire to clean up and manage the damn things. So if we use what we call filter or brewed coffee, the strength of the coffee is normally between about 1.2 and 1.5%. That means it's 98.5% water. And also when we brew filter coffee, we're brewing two, 300 mils of it at a time. So for you guys, what can you do with that? Cool it down, it's gonna take a long time, or a lot of dilution, it's gonna affect the body and mouthfeel of your drink, okay? What you do get with filter coffee, because of the filter paper method, is you get a little bit of clarity. So you can use it in like an Irish coffee, you get a really nice delicate balanced drink. But it's not really that applicable. You can brew the coffee and cool it. When you cool coffee down, it changes and it becomes more bitter. 
you can fix it with some sugar. But it's not a perfect drink to use. We have cold brew. Um, many people have opinions on it. I think I can accept that it's a drink made of coffee, but I can't accept that it's well-brewed coffee. Okay, one of the things that we talked about with somebody yesterday is about the fact that you can't dissolve the acidity. And people go, oh, it's really great, it's not acidic. Yeah, of course, it's like me saying, oh, it's really great, I'm not good at basketball. That's because I can't do it. It can't pull out the acidity, so you lose all the complexity. And also, what you tend to find with cold brew, in my opinion, it doesn't bloody matter what coffee you do, how many hours, what your method, it tastes like cold brew. It always has the same homogenized flavor. So for me, specialty coffee, I want something that's a bit more interesting. Now espresso causes a problem. Okay, so we need an expensive machine, we need to control it, we need an adjustable grinder. But what we do get is a really strong concentrate of coffee, and we can also cool that down quite quickly. Yes, it will still become a little more bitter, all coffee does, but you can cool it down either with ice or in an ice bath very, very fast. The problem is when you mix espresso into cocktails, it changes the color and the viscosity of the drink. It makes it look like muddy water. And part of the planning for this, and I'm always experimenting with coffees, I figured out something that we use very regularly in the coffee world that we can change that. And that's what we're gonna play around with today. And I think it's something you guys can take back to the bars with. One of the problems is if you wanna use a coffee as a bitter compound in a Negroni or a Boulevardier, it goes cloudy and brown. You've got this beautiful crystal glass and you've got a drink now that looks unpleasant. So we've got a way of filtering that out that works really nicely. The last thing I wanna talk about is this competition. So this is James. James is one of my friends and one of my colleagues. He entered the Coffee and Good Spirits competition for the first time ever. The Coffee and Good Spirits is a competition that is predominantly worked by baristas. They get to put alcohol. So all of the other coffee competitions Barista Brewers Cup Latte Art. In the Barista competition, you have to make a signature drink. You have to use coffee and something else other than coffee and make a drink, but you can't use alcohol. It's kind of the worst round. I judge it all the time and people put all kinds of stuff in and you keep thinking, this would be better with a bit of whiskey in it, or this would be better with a bit of gin in it, but they're not allowed. So this competition, you have to use coffee, you have to use alcohol. They normally have a sponsored alcohol. So I've been coaching James in this competition. He got through to the finals and he came fifth in the UK which is pretty good, well done James. But this competition is predominantly done by people who are baristas that make coffee, that don't have a huge background in spirits. There's no reason at all without some training and experience that you lot couldn't come and win this competition off the baristas. This is something that Joe and I talked about maybe four or five years ago, bartenders versus baristas. A barista is typically a bartender. There's a few people from Italy here, right? But in England, it's very much like, I make coffee. But I was seeing bars changing, we're seeing cafes changing, we're seeing that crossover a little bit more that we get in Australia and New Zealand, but we don't see that much in the UK. Maybe you see it more in some of the countries that each of you are from. But I think we can start looking and understanding coffee a bit better, controlling it better, and bringing a better quality product. So the drinks that they have to make is an Irish coffee. Yeah, of course. <laughs> They're all right, but they're kind of boring, aren't they? What can you do with it? You have to use whiskey, you have to use a sweetener, you have to use water, you have to use coffee. They do a cold coffee, always using a sponsored alcohol. This year it was gin. Gin and coffee, mm, they're a little bit troubling together. But fortunately, because of some of the work that we've done, uh, that Joe done really, is uh, in producing the discarded cascara vermouth, 
uh, we actually kindly used some of that in the competition and it works really well with the coffee that we used. So this coffee, the Uncle Funker that's out in front of you now, this is our summer espresso. This coffee has been dried with a kiln, it's a natural process. So it has about a 30 to 40 hour fermentation, gets all of the fruit skin and flavor in there. Some of you smelt it when I was grinding it up before and you've obviously tried some of it already. Um, can I get someone to pass out some of the cascara around please? So we brewed, so one cup to each table and then some coffee cascara to drink. Okay, yeah. Yeah, there's a few people who've been playing around with it for a while. In the UK, it's sort of a little bit muddier whether you can use it. So what I've passed to you there in the cups is actually the skin from the coffee cherry. This is the thing that's normally taken away and discarded. It's thrown away. You can try it. It's a little bit tough, but you can get the flavor. Yeah, you can use it as a tea. Typically what happens with it... Like whole cherries. I don't know how you get away with importing them. You'd have to get in touch with the farm and get them to freeze them and send them over frozen, but they would deteriorate very quickly. So those skins of the cherry, you can see how the cherry how the seeds sit inside of it. Some of you guys are smelling it and maybe chewing on it. It's a bit tough. We've got, coming around now, we probably put a cup or two on each table. I brewed some of this cascara skin with hot water. So this is the skin of the coffee cherry, and this is what I gave to Joe about two years ago? Uh, when he came to visit the roastery, hey, we've got this product, have a try, see what you can do with it. And Joe was really interested in it, and this was the inspiration for making the discarded um, vermouth, which is coming around. Yeah, this is going to be quite hot. Have a little try of it. So this is just the skin and the hot water. I got a question. Sure. They should call coffee cocktail using sponsored alcohol. Does it have to be a coffee or it can be a coffee product, like something that you pre-made at home? No, you have to make it on stage. Uh, and normally you have to use at least the espresso machine for one of the drinks. You can cool it. Or you, you have to. Yeah, you can do it. So what he did in his competition is he brewed the espresso first, put it to cool on ice, made all the other drinks, and come back and finish it off with a dry shake and pour it over ice so you got minimal dilution. You could, but you'd have to also use espresso brewed from the machine. There's a lot of rules and limits. Or you can make it while on stage. Yes, you have 10 minutes to make four drinks. It's tight. Yes, that's why it gives it a little slightly bitter taste about it. It's kind of a bit raisiny, it tastes a little bit like hibiscus tea. Okay. 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 Sure. Nice. Your question? What did you find the optimal brew temperature? About 90 degrees. Yeah, just not quite boiling, and just let it steep and really stir it up until it just cools a little bit. Yeah, and then we just literally—I strained that with a spoon. I was a bit rough. I was in a hurry. So, everyone tried some of the vermouth? Okay. So one of the things I really want to get across here is I want you to learn about the product. You learn so much about all of the different products that you use. I want you to start understanding coffee and understanding how to control it and make better coffee drinks in your bars. I guarantee that you'll see in the next few years more and more bars like yourselves, the ones you work for, pushing the boundaries a little bit. 
That doesn't mean you have to buy dark roasted coffee or Nespresso pods. It also doesn't mean you have to buy a 5,000 pound machine. In England there's one called Sage. I think Joe has one at home. They're 500 quid. You get a grinder, 700 quid. They're gonna work all right. You can't put it in a busy cafe, but in a bar, it's fine. So buy better coffee. I'm sure you all have roasteries within your area. If you go to them and talk to them, hey, I work in a bar, I wanna use your coffee. Can I try some coffee? They might give you what they call a cupping, so you can taste the different flavors and give you a bit of advice and help you out with the machinery. They'll want their coffee in your bar. We do it with a lot of the bars in, uh, in Bristol. Buy a grinder and grind your coffee to order. As soon as you grind the coffee up, ah, oh, look at the smell, it smells amazing. Yeah, that's all of the flavor escaping across the room. So as soon as you grind the coffee up, you want to be brewing it within a couple of minutes, okay? Use filtered water unless you're lucky enough to live in Iceland, okay? So make sure the water doesn't have too much calcium carbonate or chlorine in it. That'll have an impact on the coffee. It will make it taste unpleasant. Oh, you can check it out there, the, the, the best way to do it is what we call a titration kit. So you get these two little liquids. You put a measurement of them in it and it's a little dropper and it measures in what we call German degrees. Any water company, any water filter company can give you one. You drop it in and you measure the total hardness, which tells you everything that's in there but not what it is. And then you'll measure the calcium carbonate hardness. It's basically the same product to check out the pH, right? If it's acid or best. Similar, but this is more accurate yeah. and it measures what the chemicals are rather than just the pH of the water. But yeah, pH and a TDS reader is also useful. So measure and control your extraction. Use a set of scales. Measure the coffee in. Once you've made a recipe, you've got to follow it out. It's like baking. I'm a good chef. I was a chef for a long time. Give me some savory, I cook some dinner. How much is in there? Eh, enough. I won't give you a specific recipe, I just tell you the ingredients. Baking, I'm like, oh, hang on. Shh. Okay, chicken, chicken, chicken. With the coffee, you have to measure. Okay, you can't eyeball it, it's not gonna work. Okay, you measure all the drinks that you make and you train to measure correctly. Do the same with coffee, buy a set of scales. Keep your equipment clean. There's a myth that coffee machines have to be dirty to have some oil on them to make them work. Most new espresso machines are made out of surgical stainless steel. It'd be like saying to me, right, I'm gonna fry some eggs in the morning, but first I gotta cook an egg and throw the first egg away because the pan needs a bit of egg on it to cook an egg. It's nonsense, okay? So keep your machines clean. And the last thing is I really want you to do is to experiment with flavors. Play around with it. When uh, Rainbow, who works for Tia Maria and I have played around, we've used coffee really under-extracted on purpose as an acidifier in a drink. Take out the citrus and use the citric acid of the coffee. Gives a little layer. It works quite well in uh, Bloody Mary. Okay, so play around with your coffees. We've got the machines here for the whole weekend. We're gonna do a couple of drinks now and I'll show you how to filter out the coffee. We'll see if you guys agree that this is uh, potentially a pretty awesome method. Um, but we can play around with it later on. There's loads of coffee here and this is all for you guys to take back. Okay, thanks very much for listening. Do we have time for any questions now or should we go? Okay. Uh, yeah, so you were explaining that like, you don't need these ridiculously expensive machines in our bars, but like, when coming to the flavor of a shot of espresso, especially when it's going to be like the primary ingredient in a drink, exactly how important, like what percentage of importance is having a really good quality machine? I would say you want a really good grinder that you can adjust. Okay. Having a good grinder is like having good tires and a steering wheel on your car. Okay. It's very important. Most espresso machines, to be honest, they're going to give you a consistent amount of pressurized hot water again and again and again and again. Uh -huh. 
and you can normally program it to repeat quite well. The grinder's the troublesome one. Uh, part of the problem with coffee is that when it changes temperature, so from morning to night, sunshine to not, hot bar, full bar, empty bar, and also the friction, it changes the way the beans break apart. That's why you're constantly adjusting it. Okay, so when it gets hotter, it causes less tiny bits, so you have to go finer. When it's cooler, you have to coarsen it up just to manage it. I think of it a little bit like driving on a motorway. You're in the lane. You're not doing this all the time, but you're constantly just a little correction and you're just making small adjustments. So when you dial your coffee in, I know this one between 29 and 31 second extraction on our machines at home tastes perfect. Right. 27, it's sour. 35, it's bitter. Right, so it's like a misconception that having insane, like high pressure, super high quality espresso machine is necessary. It's important for consistency, but having a really like old grinder or yeah. old bl uh, blunt blades on it yeah. is gonna cause more problems. So okay. spend good money on a grinder. Okay. What is your concern about uh, using cold coffee in like, let's say, espresso machine? I'll give you an example. My friend at home, he's got a bar. The bar is probably the size of this table. Yeah. Okay. He's got no place for like sure. a coffee machine. So therefore he can't make any like good espresso machines. Yeah. Yep. What if he goes every morning to Rocket Bean, buys one liter or two, depends on how, how busy he is, and he just keeps it at his bar, and then every time he has to make the espresso martini, he uses this that he just bought in the morning. It's going to be better than using instant coffee, for sure. Um, the problem is... <laughs> the problem is... So it sounded really sarcastic. Sorry. It's like non-alcoholic beer. So but you, you, you don't get the body and the oils out of the cold brew very well? No, so, um, no I didn't mean cold brew. Oh, sorry. They would make espresso and then take it. Okay, so this is a good idea. So if you're making espresso, what happens is you have this layer of foam on top called crema. This is marketing, right? They used to call it scum and foam, and then someone was like, crema, which in Italian means cream, right? Oh, we like it now. Everyone wants crema. Um, what will happen is those oils will just dissolve into the coffee, so you'll still get the viscosity and the texture and the foam. I would say it would keep for a couple of days in the fridge. Yeah, it's a, it's a perfectly good solution. If you're buying good coffee, grinding it, brewing it correctly, then cooling it, all it means you've got to fix it with a little more sugar, but it is quite unstable. Two or three days, it's going to start to change. That's my other problem with cold brew. It's yeah, very unstable. It every day in the morning. Yeah, that's a good solution. Yeah. Still fresh coffee. It's still fresh coffee. Buy the beans fresh. They're roasting them well. Say hi to Martin if you see him. Yeah. I miss him. It's great. Um, brew the coffee properly, control everything, and then cool it. It's a better product than what else you're going to do. Your friend's onto the right thing, for sure. All right, let's go make some drinks. I've cooled some espresso shots down. I'm going to run you through a how to make espresso quite quickly. Um, we can go back to it a little bit later on, okay? Thank you. So, one of the challenges we have with espresso is that it's hot, but it's also this really kind of thick, um, cloudy texture when we put it into a drink. Exactly. This every time, clean with a cloth. And throw the cloth in the Yep, put it back in, rinse it out, clean it through. Better to leave it in there. No, you leave it in. Take it out, clean it. Don't leave it in dirty, no. You rinse it out, that cleans off the shower screen. At the end of the day, you're gonna clean it out. We don't have time for that, so. Cool, so I think we've got some drinks there. What I want to talk to you about a little bit, obviously when we make a fresh espresso, we've got these oils in there, it gives us mouthfeel and viscosity, but as we talked about, it makes the drinks really, really cloudy. It's not very pleasant. We have these little things, okay? This is made by a company called VST, okay? Um, 
This guy created a, a coffee-specific refractometer. So when we're measuring the TDS, the total dissolved solids of the drink, we use these to filter out any of the particles. Because what it's doing, it's an optical refractometer, and it's reading light refraction. If there's just coffee in the water, it'll give you a higher reading. It's incorrect. So whenever we're doing testing or we're running Brewers' Cup competitions, we always use these for filtering the coffee. And I've had these at my side for ages, and it was literally a week ago, because I tried using a, a paper filter to pour out some, take off the oils, but it just stalls in the filter. Whereas this, because it's pressurized, yeah, we're going to filter them out. So we're going to make a couple of drinks and compare them and see how they look. Cool. Can we maybe use a glass, please, so we can see the difference. So these are shots that I pulled earlier, so they're a little bit cooler. So we'll try and use the same amount of coffee. But with these here, they're little micro paper filters. Okay. So you screw it in. It was a bit of a chip, but we're going to go with it. So this gives you a really nice, beautiful, clear, coffee-tasting drink. The only problem is these things are designed to be used once. They're quite wasteful, and they cost about one pound forty. Yeah. You just well, build it into the price of your drink. Oh, it is indeed. Grab another glass. Sorry. Well spotted. So we try and put roughly the same amount in, and then if we build the drink over it, we'll see the difference in the taste. Uh, sorry, in the in the visuals. Okay, so that's ready. Yeah, goes. So what we've done is we've removed some of the Campari, which is the bitter compound, because we know the coffee is going to be a little bitter, because it's also cooled down a little bit. And we should be fixing that with the coffee, building a little bit of depth and strength into the drink. It's the biggest challenge we've had with espressos. And I was like, I have these in a cupboard. They're expensive. You want to try? You could probably buy bigger ones of these that are slightly less fine that would probably do the job as well. They're, they're a little bit. I mean, they're just they're medical grade, basically. We tried that so many times, and what happens is it just stalls. The, the particles are so fine because the filter paper typically, like I'll show you the ones we use, are designed for using quite a coarse grind setting. So these paper filters in different shapes and sizes work. We've even tried diluting the drink with water to push it back through, but it just doesn't work. It stalls and you lose too much coffee. So these are uh, potentially a solution. So you need the pressure to force it through. Oh, yeah, it seems like, to be. It's like chromatography when you're pushing. Can you do it in a way that like, you can open it and change it? Uh, not at the moment. You can try reusing them as well. Yeah, the guy who invented the refractometer was like, and it only works if you buy these things. But anyway, I brought a handful of these. We can have a play around with them over the, uh, the next day or so. We've got the espresso machine here and grinders as well. Because we run out of time a little bit, we do have loads of coffee here. I've got both processes. Let's start making later on. Um, you can make some espresso martinis with each of them. I know that working with Rainbow at Tia Maria, that the Uncle Funker is like, it tastes absolutely banging. It's really, really tasty with espresso martini. It's got that really nice kind of fruit flavor. Sweet, I'm going to stop there because otherwise we're going to run way into lunch and we're in the afternoon. So thank you again very much for listening. Thank you. And